Hey, I'm Kyle Oki. And I'm Jason Hansen. And you are listening to the Agronomist Happy Hour podcast. Rock and roll. That's why they took vodka over there. <laughs> You're better off spraying the vodka on those last words. <laughs> <laughs> Drought is no fun to endure. It, it's Devil's right hand. <laughs> it, you, oh, no. That's beer. <laughs> Welcome back, everybody. You are listening to the Agronomist Happy Hour. And yet again, we have got a good one in store. So buckle up for this. We are going to be talking to Larry Schulz and Andrew Thostason, who are both pesticide safety education program coordinators well i should say andrew currently is for the state of north dakota working at ndsu and larry has been retired for some years uh, i believe he retired probably 12 13 years ago i think that's what he said yeah so larry is retired but from the university of nebraska and he's still doing stuff with them he's yeah. retired but he's still he's still very active in things Yes, and you're going to find that out when you listen to our interview with the two of them on the podcast. So, very cool conversation here. Before we get to having our guests introduce themselves, why don't we listen to a quick word from our sponsors. Are you a consultant that's looking for a better way to organize your day? Or your life? Are you a farmer that's looking for a way to keep better field records? Or get your hired help to the right fields? Gosh, that would be important. You know, Jason, there's a tool that's called FarmQA that could do a really good job of that. Kyle, they build digital tools for agronomy. That's what I hear, but don't take our word for it. CropLife has listed FarmQA as a top agricultural tool for the last two years. And they're based right here in Fargo, North Dakota. And you can find them on FarmQA.com, FarmQA on Twitter. And who do we always say to find out for more information? That'd be our good friend, Ben Munson. He will hook you up. Check him out. Like we were saying earlier, we have Andrew Thostason and Larry Schulz with us on the podcast. And we weren't ready to hit the ground running right away, so I didn't hit the record button right away. We get mid-conversation as Andrew has already introduced himself. He's the first guy you hear speaking, and he'll introduce Larry. And they just start to talk and go from there. So please enjoy. South Dakota in the spring of 98 at a regional meeting. And Larry thought that I was sufficiently interesting to have conversations with and i don't know larry we we did a lot of horse trading back and forth and visiting on different pesticide related issues for what 10 or 12 years before you retired i retired officially at december 2007 okay i thought it was around then but i've been involved in pesticide education issues every year subsequently um doing some other things too right so uh Larry, when did you actually start in the coordinator position role in Nebraska? It was uh, April of uh, 1987. Okay. So what you all need to understand is, is that, you know, the whole pesticide certification and training thing uh, was in an incredible state of flux during the 1980s, and it really didn't start to become kind of a regularized regimen 
probably until the late 80s, early 90s. Wouldn't that be a good way to describe it, uh, Larry? Because everybody was just kind of trying to figure out what, what they were supposed to do. I would agree. And believe it or not, Nebraska was very unique in those early days because our pesticide regulator was not the Nebraska Department of Agriculture. It was the EPA itself. Really? And the EPA was the regulatory authority until 1993. And uh, finally, the Department of Agriculture was officially designated to be the regulatory authority for pesticides. And that's when I began to work directly with them rather than directly with the EPA. Right. So Larry's situation is a little bit unique compared to a lot of other states because every state is designated a state lead regulatory agency. And North Dakota got their designation in the early 80s. Um, So that would have been the North Dakota Department of Agriculture at the time. But Larry and the folks in Nebraska were like going, you know what, we're not going to do this thing. We're going to let EPA deal with it. And they did for, what, eight or nine years before Nebraska decided to step up and, and take over the program? Well, I happened to be an extension educator in, at Grand Island, Nebraska, Hall County, in the very first year that pesticide uh, certification training came into being nationwide. Yeah. And if I, now, you're going to have to help me on this one particular thing because, Andrew, I think that was probably about 1977. And uh, so I've, I've taught pesticide education since 1977 um, while, at extension, while, while an extension educator at Grand Island. Um, came to campus in the agronomy department in 80 and uh, was uh, had some extension responsibilities, but was no longer directly involved in extension while I worked on the final degree. I worked as an associate coordinator of a Morocco dryland farming project, and I was at the coordinating office of the entire operation in the agronomy department at Lincoln, and we had a team of about 12 researchers in Morocco doing uh, wheat and barley research dryland farming. And then I came back into extension in... Um, um, April of 1987, after my degree, and, and for 20 years, uh, was PSEP coordinator for the University of Nebraska. Yeah, that's P- Pesticide Safety Education Program Coordinator. That's what I am at North Dakota State. Um, and interestingly enough, I'm, I'm kind of one of the more odder ducks because uh, the state of North Dakota said, you know what, when it comes to certification and training, we don't want the Department of Agriculture to have anything to do with it. We want NDSU to be responsible for this completely. So they cut out the Department of Agriculture. And even to this day, I'm one of the few university operations that is responsible for both the regulation and the education of pesticide applicators, even though I have to take certain strong suggestions from our Department of Agriculture. We really are an independent shop. And Larry, when he was in Nebraska, was not that way. Uh, You all definitely had to work in a collaborative arrangement with the Department of Agriculture down there. And some of that's good, some of it's not so good, but you guys made it work well. One of the most important things that we did in Nebraska to facilitate that working relationship with the Department of Ag is that I established a once-a-month noon luncheon, yep. which the uh, Department of Ag reps, uh, you typically were two individuals in pesticide regulation, came out to uh, campus, 
on East Campus, and I bought their noon lunch at the Student Union, and there was a chance uh, with without any formal agendas. We just visited and talked, and gosh, I learned a lot of things. I, I learned from Tim Crager, who you have met, uh, Andrew, who's the pesticide, the pesticide contact regulator at the Department of Ag. Um, I, I'd learned from him about w what the EPA was challenging him with and with some of the background, what was going on, his frustrations, and so on. And then he would learn into uh, with me on the education side of things. And it, it worked very, very well. Once a month, um, a luncheon meeting. Uh, we have, we, you know, it, Department of Agriculture and NDSU kind of go in waves around here over the last 20 some years. And it depends on the personalities at the Department of Ag. Now, Larry and, and the people in Nebraska have been blessed with very stable leadership at the Department of Agriculture for what, 25, 30 years now? 35 Tim Krager, years? Tim Krager came to Nebraska in 1993 as as um, pesticide programs manager, he's still there as of today with the Department of Ag. And you know what's so funny? I'm sorry we're talking about the olden times, but I was an agronomist in Washington State, in the state of Washington. And Tim Krieger was an enforcement honcho over at Washington State. And I must admit, I didn't really have very high opinion of him, but I was kind of a renegade agronomist like you guys were or are no not as much as uh, we were a lot more renegade in those days and uh when i found out he was down in nebraska and i found out that larry had to deal with him i just shook my head but the older i've gotten the more wisdom i've found with tim and and i do respect him enormously so this whole pesticide game man it's been it's been around for a real long time that's the, whole, that's the whole point of it, too, is because, I, you know, I think people generally it's, you know, maybe they have to deal if they're getting recertified. And so that's that's their experience and it's kind of their time. But there's they maybe they don't know or they don't care of how things evolved and where it started. And to me, I'm, I'm a history guy. And uh, there's I mean, there's there's different things. Look at this week. <laughs> this week's been crazy, right? I mean, mm -hmm. not just the world, but I mean, around pesticide things with this whole enlist thing that Bear announced. Yep. The first thing I thought of was Bear paid how much to buy Monsanto, and now they're at this point. <laughs> well, Imagine, Larry, Imagine what Corteva know. thinks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Larry, you maybe don't know this is all kind of inside baseball to you because you're not as in touch with this, but you do know that there's been a lot of off-target drift issues with dicamba and the new extend technology in soybeans and cotton and um monsanto and then bear the purchaser of monsanto has kind of been in a, a rear guard defensive posture for five six years on this thing trying to carry the torch on dicamba and they've actually treated alternative technologies like Enlist, which is the 2,4-D technology on soybeans with a little bit of disdain and, well, I mean, they're competitors, right? Yeah. And so, mm -hmm. so this week, uh, I was watching somebody on Twitter. They sent a picture of a waving, a waving white flag. And... <laughs> And uh, somebody said, well, aren't you going to comment on that, Andrew? And I said, well, I work for the university. I have no comment. 
but I laugh so hard. But, uh, you know, the fact that we even have that technology and, and the fact that how complicated it is going to be moving forward. So um, the Enlist technology has not been something that has really bothered EPA. It hasn't been a real big issue for them in terms of off-target issues. But holy, when they sat down to do the renewal, they ran into a buzzsaw with endangered species and dropped a whole bunch of stuff on the new Enlist label. And that is the beginning. This endangered species issue on Enlist, and it started with Dicamba on the Extend technology a couple years ago, that is going to be the way of the future when it comes to the re-registration of all pesticides. And, uh, you know, like Jason was saying, you know, it's like just when we, we think that the world is kind of normal or we understand what's going on, then you get hit from left, left field with this stuff. Yeah. Hmm. Andrew, I believe with Nebraska having 93 counties, there are 32 counties, one-third of the counties, that cannot allow, do not allow enlist to be applied. Really? And that's oh, because the, of the endangered species piece yeah, or exactly. other reasons? Yeah. Okay. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Across, across the Sandhills is the um, piping plover, uh, uh, and, and, and uh, we also have a blowout penstemon, uh, that growing in, across the state, uh, well, in the Sandhills again. And Nebraska is host to about 4,000 individual plants of the blowout pestamen with a couple thousand in also known to be in Wyoming. So that makes it the two states have the world's total blowout pestamens, apparently. But no, it's, where, it's yeah. huge. Uh, in Nebraska, Oklahoma is another area that's really been heavily impacted by this. And, you know, like Kyle and Jason, you, the way I look at it is, is that Corteva was faced with a very, very ticklish situation. They could either fight to get all of the endangered species things kind of more or less relaxed and risk the registration, the renewal of the registration for the rest of the country, or they could just suck it up. And I'm not saying that Corteva did anything wrong, but if they would have gone to the mat and tried to really fight hard for those endangered species restrictions in those counties, we may be still wondering whether or not the enlist technology would be available for the rest of the country for 2022. So it's just, it, it boggles the mind at how we've gotten ourselves into some of these torture, torturous things. I'm surprised that the dicamba RUPs are still allowed to be on the market because of all the drift issues they've had. I was hired by BASF, and I taught um, farmer um, dicamba training sessions across the state of Nebraska for three consecutive uh, winters of 18, 19, and 20. And, and uh, farmers attended them, not necessarily because they would be applying one of these uh, dicamba RUPs, but as an as a ace in their back pocket in case they couldn't get the local co-op or the ag chemical dealer to make the application for them, they may have, they, they had the permit to do so along coupled with their license to make the application if necessary. I'd say that stands pretty, that that was similar here. I think there's a lot of farmers that would rather have hired that out custom application, but if they didn't have the ability, it was nice to have the certification to do that. So Larry, 
Um, I'm sure that Nebraska is similar to North Dakota, but there's no question, and I think Jason will agree with me on this, and probably Kyle, the Dicamba technology works extraordinarily well in areas where we have really bad kosher. And we have really bad kosher in probably three-quarters of North Dakota. Everything, you know, three-quarters of the, of the western part of the state, kosher is like the number one problem. Mm-hmm. We have problems with, with, with Palmer in little isolated pockets and a lot of water hemp in the eastern 25 or 30 percent. And there, it's a huge problem. But the kosha responds, or I mean, the control with the dicamba technology is more effective on the kosha. And so I think there are a lot of farmers and custom applicators that would like to utilize more of the enlisted technology, but they have this problem called kosha. Now, the other thing, Jason, and maybe you can comment on this, and, you know, you, and Kyle, you guys have better intelligence on this, but the uh, enlist traded lines did not have quite as much adaptation in some of the drier and northern areas of North Dakota. And that's starting to kind of ease up. They're getting better genetics now. So so some of the deficiencies of the enlist technology are kind of the genetics are kind of improving. And so so now you're just efficacy issues on kosher. But I mean, we need, you know, I, I know you guys, Jason has followed me for a long time. It, it's driven me crazy, you know, all this dicamba damage. But, you know, we kind of need all the tools we can get. And that, uh, That's the unfortunate reality. We know that there's some inherent risk that goes with using dicamba, but I just don't know what other options we really have in our current state, especially yeah. for, for the kosher issues we deal with in soybeans. Yeah. No, and I get that. I you know, I really do. But I mean, you know, if you're a farmer out there, and you're like trying to pull your hair out, trying to figure out what, you know, am I going to have dicamba in 2022? Should I get rid of it and go to enlist in 2023? Because the lawsuits and EPA and yeah, it's just, it's the regulatory arena is so crazy. And it, it just kind of builds on its stuff. I mean, we just like, some of this stuff goes back 30 years Larry, you remember the olden days when we had an issue with Alar and Apples? Yes, Alar, yes. Yeah. Now, that was the time that we began PCEP uh, training um, with slide tape programming. You remember those days. And the um, you remember the person's name, Burke Beaumont from Colorado State University? He was yeah. the narrator on those slide tape programs in the very early days. And... The thought I had about that as I reflected many years later was here they use um, uh, university equipment, Colorado State University equipment, out in research fields, uh, showing a a tractor pulling a a, a trailer sprayer, and that was about as sophisticated they had it at that particular time. And uh, why did they use a Farmel M tractor to pull that sprayer? I don't have any idea. Because when this was this was coming, this, the PSEP was starting in 1970. Um, what did I say, 76, 77. Um, uh, that tractor was already 30, 35 years of age. Now, talk about being accepted by the by the farmer audience using a tractor that was already 35 years of age. That that was a turnoff right there. I I think that's that's true. Well, I mean this. 
this LR and Apples thing was interesting to me because this was the first, I don't want to say it was like a, this is the first time the general consumer market said, we're afraid of pesticides. And it wasn't because there was a, a health risk. They were, it was a market risk. People couldn't sell apples because of this chemical that they were using as a thinning agent in apples. I remember, and, I remember that as a kid watching that on TV in the news. Right. I mean, it was in on 60 Minutes. So, so anyway, what that led to was what they called the Food Quality Protection Act in the early 90s. And that really began some of these regulations in terms of dietary risk and human exposure and even endangered species started to crawl into the issues into the early 90s. And you'll also remember that in the late 1990s, we had this huge consolidation of pesticide registration companies. They started to combine. One of them, you know, was was the old American Home Products and American Cyanamid. And all these companies started to collapse onto each other. Now, part of that was driven by Roundup technology and the glyphosate technology in corn and soybeans. But the other thing was, is in those days with the Food Quality Protection Act, they had a very, very tight um, funnel that they could push new products or new registrations through. And that funnel was so tight that one of the ways that you could get through that funnel, that regulatory funnel, was to buy seats from other pesticide manufacturing companies. So if, you know, you were American Home Products and you bought American Cyanamid, you could buy five more chemical compounds a year to be evaluated. So these were like, these were like valuable commodities that, that they were, these were like regulatory slots that they need to get through. So, so we saw that consolidation. And then we had another one that's very interesting. And I don't think a lot of farmers and custom applicators, but Larry, maybe you can weigh in on this. We had the Pesticide Registration Improvement Act come into play in the early 2000s because EPA couldn't get the appropriations to do the studies necessary to do the registrations. So the registrant said, fine, we'll pay for it. And so now, a lot of people don't realize this, but probably 70% of EPA's pesticide registration budget is paid for from the registrants themselves. And whether you think that's a good thing or not, it certainly causes some, how should I say it, some conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. Right. So if you're an environmental group or consumer group and the chemical companies are paying for the evaluation of these compounds, and the ways that EPA can generate more funds to do more studies is to get more money from the registrants. Holy cow. Talk one, about thing that, one thing that further brought in dollars into EPA's pockets was that there was a requirement about at that same time that a pesticide was once the label became onto the market, it was a requirement for the label to be re-evaluated and approved every 15 years. A few Food Quality Protection Act brought that into place, yep. At, at the, if a, prior to that, once a product came onto the market, that label could be used as long as the registrant wanted to manufacture and sell it. But because of the Food Quality Protection Act, now it's every 15 years it has to be re-evaluated. So even something like atrazine has to be re-evaluated uh, every 15 years? Is that... 
how I understand that? Yes. Yeah. As a matter, matter of fact, um, there was that really caused a big boost in the number of private applicators that uh, came into the system because uh, atrazine was not an RUP uh, originally, and it didn't. And but when it became an RUP, uh, that everybody was using it, so that meant it. All of a sudden, the farmer participants uh, they became registered, licensed pesticide applicators. So this is another interesting. Uh, anomaly that that popped up in the late um, 2008-2009 and Larry you were just going into retirement but I'm sure that you recall this Dow AgroSciences at the time was having Picloram Tordon reevaluated it was their 15-year evaluation thing now you all know what Picloram is and Tordon we've uses uh, stuff forever. It's been around since the 1960s. It's a, it's a great noxious weed, broadleaf herbicide. So anyway, one of the problems that EPA identified was a water quality problem with picloram. Picloram is extremely mobile in the soil, and it can get into aquifers and surface water. And of course, nobody wants to have picloram in their water. Obviously, picloram in your water is not a good thing because it doesn't take very much picloram to cause problems. Anyway, at this time, Dow AgroSciences said, you know what, EPA? We are going to go out there and we are going to do a training program for all of our users of picloram. Uh, We'll even call it a certification for picloram. And so, lo and behold, the first product stewardship training was suggested by Dow AgroSciences. Now you're saying, well, we don't have anything like that. And that's because people like Larry and I and other people with the uh, state lead regulatory agency says, well, once we go down this road, there's no stopping the number of special trainings that are going to be required for every little pesticide that has every little weirdness. And EPA was like, well, it's a really good idea, but okay, we'll back off. Well, then the soil fumigants came up, and they said, this is it. We're going to do it. They instituted it in soil fumigants. They got that done. They also did it to some degree uh, with grain fumigants, and then the next big domino to fall was the Paraquat thing, and then the Dicamba thing, and I mean, it's like, where do you want to stop and start? You want to have 30 different certifications for these things? It's just mind-boggling. And if you want to have a certification program, have a certification program. But if you want to have 35 or different, 35 different, uh, you know, pesticide-specific trainings, well, fine. I mean, you know, that's where we are right now. I think we're on the cusp of a little training for every little pesticide that has a little anomaly. Wouldn't you agree, Larry? Yes, and I think we're right on the edge of that with uh, uh, the neonics. Um, and that's really, that's that's big news in this territory because of the problems uh, just north of Lincoln, about 35 miles with the alt and um, um, alcohol, uh, gasohol facility, which and Andrew and I have been keeping kind of each other informed about that particular item right there. Right. I, I think we may, Larry, we may see a special training targeted directly at people who want to use seed treatments with neonicotinoids. Um, yes. 
because we've had some serious problems and EPA is like, well, let's just have another training. <laughs> it was today. I was in the car going into Lincoln and back. I live outside of Lincoln about uh, 15 miles or so. And I caught on NPR an interview with an entomologist who has written a book. And, and NPR does that. They interview a lot of um, authors on associated with their book. But this particular fellow as an entomologist began to suspect that there were decreasing diversity of insects um, in his world. And he, that launched a series of, of uh, investigations on his part on different uh, research activities are going on, especially those that were involved in, in, the, in the assessment of populations. And uh, he got into this particular group of uh, pesticides, of uh, neonics. And uh, he, he, he had a lot of good detail, and he was quite accurate, although I think he missed one point that he, he gave the impression that all of these products were applied on the soil surface. And even though he referred to treated seed, it, it didn't come through cleanly that that seed is, uh, treated seed is placed into the soil, not laying on the surface of the soil. So there are little nuances like that I was picking up that he wasn't very clear about. Right, and so the public perception may think that it's a surface applied thing when it's really a seed treat thing. And, and yes. it's, how do these, because the, the dusting off is a great example. Dusting off, sure, that makes a lot of sense if the physical dust on a seed treatment is actually becoming airborne in an environment that could affect insects. But the reality is, is it's usually in a closed system going underground and buried. So how does dusting off have, to me, it has minimal impact except for maybe whatever is exactly downwind, downstream of maybe a treating facility. And Mm -hmm. maybe it's things that the treating facility has to do to mitigate risk. This same gentleman did not use the word bioaccumulation, but he implied that once the seed treatments were applied, they're like an organochlorine compound. It just stayed in the environment for a long, long time. That's not the case. They do de- degrade and they do com- decompose because they're not organochlorines. But uh, he, g- he gave the impression that they uh, persisted in the soil. So that's another interesting thing. Um, I shouldn't digress too much, but Organochlorines are like your DDTs and heptachlors, and and one of the very last organochlorines was lindane. That's one of your favorite, Jason, from DB Green. Yeah, <laughs> it's so anyway, broad spectrum and awesome of a product. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, lindane was one of the last of the organochlorines, but it it all goes back to DDT and this bioaccumulation thing. So you consume the the uh, organochlorine and you can't eliminate it because it accumulates in your fat and and you literally pass it on to the next generation through mothers nursing their children and that's one of the ways that you can mobilize the organochlorines and you know you guys are a little younger than Larry and I but I'm pretty well certain that you all are walking around with a lot of organochlorine in your fat system, um, in your fatty tissues because of your moms. But that's, that's you were least, never. That's the least of my worries, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> you were never ever exposed to that directly. And I mean, it's just some of the weirdness in the pesticide world. But if you were, yeah, if you came from farming lineage. 
that would have used those types of pesticides. Right. Yeah. You got it from your mom, man. Mm-hmm. And if she nursed you, you're, well, you, you got all kinds of DDT in your body. I mean, this is sort of stuff that Larry and I have to, you know, I shouldn't say Larry and I have to, but Larry, in your career, we we dealt with all these weird anomalies. We have to explain this stuff to like normal people like you and like Kyle and Jason and these other farmers out there. I mean, but this is this is absolutely golden information and, and great to know here because I I just got back from a, a family vacation in in Orlando here just last night, and that was some of the uh, so my some of my in-laws that live in kind of the uh, northern part of Orlando have opinions on lots of topics. And we got into the topic agriculture, and I already knew that wasn't a topic I really wanted to dive into, but they used, they didn't know about the organochlorines and how they specifically stay in fat, but they were referring to different pesticides and how that's what they can do and that's how they pass along and we don't really understand the implications and it's like i i don't think they understand the amount of safety that's been implemented in just the last 20 years let alone the last let's say 30 or 40 to Which, to what's yeah. what's actually safe and what isn't and and again that's a forever evolving science uh, it's been counter it's been counterbalanced by things like twitter and facebook so interestingly enough uh jason Today I was having one of a uh, conversation with a, a Twitter friend and it was regarding Paraquat. And I don't know how closely you've been following some of the things going on in the Paraquat world with regards to Parkinson's disease. I see the ads on so, TV all the time. Right. So, so Parkinson's disease in a 2011 study by the Agricultural Health Study, and I'm going to let Larry talk about that study here in a moment because I think it's really fascinating, suggested that there was some sort of association by between people who were exposed to Paraquat and the development of Parkinson's disease, which is a nervous disorder. And it's very debilitating, and it's often terminal. Well, anyway, right now, the major registrant for Paraquat is facing some serious legal litigation regarding this Paraquat issue and Parkinson's. And, you know, I was having conversations with, uh, uh, you know, Twitter friends about this. They were like, what, you know, I really can't say anything about this on an email or even a DM. I'll I'll talk to you about it on the phone, but I I don't want to have my messages Mm -hmm. like subpoenaed by the court. But, the interesting thing is, is I just did a talk on this yesterday for our aerial applicators, and EPA did an exhaustive evaluation of Paraquat and Parkinson's. They published the results of it about six months ago, and they found absolutely zero association between Parkinson's and Paraquat. So even though we had this really good study in 2011, after they went back and really drilled down and looked at it, they found that there wasn't any association. So even though we can have really good research, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's absolutely conclusive. And Right, that you find one particular example. It's, it's kind of like the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and the use of a home-use glyphosate product. 
Right. So, Larry, why don't you tell these guys what the agricultural health study is? I know, Jason, you've been at some meetings where we've talked about this, but you guys did quite a bit of education on this a few years back. So why don't you explain to them what that's all about? Well, most importantly, it is a cohort study of pesticide applicators. Pesticide applicators from two states, uh, the state of Iowa and the state of North Carolina. Those that are in the program from Iowa are private applicators. Those are in North North Carolina are commercial pesticide applicators. Um, If I remember right, there's about 54,000 pesticide applicators that are uh, that enrolled in that program. Uh, I, as a PSAP coordinator with UNL, um, happened to be visiting an extension educator in Iowa. 1993, where that was the first introductory year of the ag uh, health study, they were enrolling people, farmers, at PSEP training events, private applicators. And I I was walking around the room um, uh, helping them fill out the the questionnaire that asked all sorts of questions about their usage of pesticides and what products they were and uh, the PPE, if they used it, and so on. And that's the, the, the important thing about the Ag Health Study is that it is a cohort study. That means you grab a nucleus of applicators and you learn about them and you stay in contact with them over the years. It's not a case study where you go after somebody that is sick from a supposedly a pesticide and you try and figure out their history and background of how they came in contact with it. So because it's a cohort study, that gives it an a great credibility. So um, 40, 46,000 farmers in the state of, uh, of Iowa are involved with that. And there are new things that are learned as the years are passing and publications are available about, about that. But it did more or less confirm that uh, there was not that great of a problem, although there are exceptions, and not that great of a, of a, of a, of a acute or chronic exposures to pesticide applicators. And, and so what kind of questions did they ask uh, on those kinds of cohort studies? I mean, what, what kind of data were they, are they gathering on an ongoing basis? Well, the most important thing is that you are actually visiting and collecting data with the person who is involved, the pesticide applicator. So you were not relying upon third-party individuals of a parent, a sibling, or a, or a child of somebody that got sick and died, and you're trying to figure out why that person died, as is in a case study. This is co- a cohort study. So they asked them about their health history, um, and are, are they subject, do they have diabetes to begin with? Uh, do they have uh, um, other related problems with heart murmurs, or whatever the case is? They, they, they started with a knowledge base of their health status, and then they go back and with selected individuals over the years, they actually were doing blood draws and uh, to, to monitor these individuals and confirming, are you still involved with using this product? What is your PPE? What do you estimate your exposure it is? And have you had subsequent health concerns? So I, I wish I could tell you all those individual questions. You're asking me about what the questions were in 1993. I'm afraid <laughs> I can't do that. So, so, so Larry, uh... Larry's absolutely right about that. I mean, that's that was the baseline, okay? So they enrolled these people, but they are still following them to this day, okay? Yes. So, so they enrolled these people in the early 90s. Presumably, they were in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 
and they follow him 35 or 40 years. They ask him annual information about their health status. That's annual. Uh, when some of these individuals have certain illnesses, they'll go in and they'll drill down and they'll they'll do blood draws or evaluations. The other things they'll do is they'll say, well, we'll take 5% of the people in our study and we will go in and we will interview them, interview them intensively about their practices, okay? So like, how do you do this? How did you do that? What did you do at the end of the day when you came in from being in the field? What did you do when you came into your house? How did you deal with your clothes? How did your spouse deal with those clothes in terms of handling or processing or cleaning those clothes? And they would go into intimate details. And what's so cool about this, and I'm so proud of our farming and pesticide applicator communities, they're like, Whatever you want to know, we'll work with you on it. We'll tell you everything we know. So this study is just rock solid in terms of epidemiology. And, and, I, and I, I think it's because our agricultural community is so concerned about the health, their own health and their family's health. And they just want to provide the best information they can on the, on the uh, you know, the epidemiology of some of these diseases. And Larry, help me. I, I think that of all of the cancers or other chronic diseases, even to this day, I think the only one that's been rock solid is, is some of the prostate cancer in men has been legitimately demonstrated to be associated with certain pesticide molecules, but everything else has just been an association. I mean, only the prostate cancer has been identified as a causal agent. Is, isn't that correct? That is correct. As a matter of fact, one of the most important points that have come out of the Ag Health Study was the fact that farmers, and, uh, or I should say broader category, pesticide applicators, whether they're private or commercial, when compared to the general U.S. population, the pesticide applicators are healthier. <laughs> and hmm. that's, that's shown in the study. With, with, with fewer, with, with uh, many diseases occurring less frequently, and uh, that, that's a revelation right there. And it's yeah. primarily related to the fact that they are a bit more active, just physically active. Hmm. So I was thinking, yeah. So there is one thing that I would say is a downside risk that they have discovered in the agricultural health study, and I think that people of your generation are starting to appreciate this a lot more. But back in the day, back when Larry, you know, was was really starting into the pesticide training safety thing, and and then me in the in the late '90s, people were really casual about exposure. I mean, it's like, you know what? I can't be bothered with it's glyphosate for crying out loud. You know, it's like, come on, okay? Mm -hmm. So. Um, the agricultural health study confirmed for us in intimate and minute detail that those people who did not try to take care of themselves, in other words, avoid exposure, wear gloves, do the minimal things, okay, to just prevent getting exposed, had more health problems. And, and, and part of that is, is that they were so casual about pesticides, 
maybe they were casual about other things. That was yeah. just what I was thinking, yeah. Yeah. And and the other thing was, is like people who had a catastrophic pesticide event. Okay. So like, let's say that you had a major failure in, in a pesticide, a piece of pesticide application equipment. So you go like doused with pesticides. Those people were at much higher risk of disease in the grand scheme of things than people who had not experienced that. Why is that? Well, sometimes when people don't take care of their equipment, they're more stressed out, they're more financially on the margins, equipment fails, they end up getting into a a major high-profile pesticide event. This is not just related to that event. It's a lifestyle situation. So um, we have the agricultural health study has demonstrated if you take care of yourself, your risk associated with disease or long-term chronic problems is lower than the general population. If you don't take care of yourself, all bets are off. One Man. thing are the technology that's equivalent. You, you remember the days where before we had air planters with one central tank of seed? That's when you had the, the uh, small quantity of seed right over the top of each individual row going down that field, okay? Now, backing up even earlier, and part of that part of it was seed treatments that were applied to that seed in that uh, at that particular time, right there on the planter itself. And I would hear stories of farmers saying, oh, yeah, I just reached in there after I put uh, that seed treatment in, and I stirred up with my hands. Oh, gloves? Yeah, I'm supposed to wear gloves, you know? So that's not even common right right now. The, the average individual today from in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, that would be so foreign, they'd be aghast at that. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting, Larry, because, you know, I was having some a conversation about paraquat and closed handling systems today. And, um, you know, I mean, some of these closed handling systems are just so, I mean, it's like Buck Rogers, you know. It's like, <laughs> you know, you just plug it in and, yeah, I mean, it's like there's, like, no way you can get any of this stuff on you. And it's like. I don't want to say it's easy. It's just that it's so much more precise. These people in the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s, I would say probably till about 2004 or five, they didn't have these tools. I mean, Kyle, uh, Jason, I mean, some of these tools now, it's like you can't imagine not working with these things like that, right? I mean, it, it, it just wouldn't be normal. Isn't that right? I, I made the comment uh, yesterday uh, when I was down in Fargo. I I cannot imagine <clears throat> people that work today in retail have no idea what it was like to work in retail back in the in the nineties. It's it's totally different. Uh, everything is the equipment, the products, the handling. Um, yeah, it's it's. I'd probably still be in retail if if it was back then like it is now for sure but you don't even have to rewind that far back think of paraquat great example that closed handling system hasn't been around all that long i mean that apparently that apparently the only association with paraquat and parkinson's is the first three letters of each word (laughs) (laughs) well that's good to know because um that situation is uh it seems like the 
the horse is out of the barn because you see the ads, the legal ads. If you you know if you've been exposed, blah blah blah. Right. No, that's all anybody's going to hear. They associate that, and they nobody knows about that study. I started an additional program with as a PCEP coordinator in 1992, and that was uh, teaching of um, IPM to master gardeners. I've done that mm. to. I've got a master gardener presentation on IPM coming up at the end of this month at Omaha. So I've done it every year consecutively, with the exception of one COVID year. I didn't get it done. Um, like Kyle was speaking a little bit earlier, he goes goes uh, for a bit of a break in Florida, and he's being asked in agricultural-related questions, and maybe it leads into pesticides. I will have to this day master gardeners that are n- new interns coming into the program and they will still be thinking about DDT and eagles. Now, DDT came off the market in 1971, but that essence is all is still there. And and um, that's that's why I also talk about the annual um, program data, the uh, uh, products data program out of the um, FDA of about pesticide residues in foods, food products across the uh, United States. I, that's a component that I bring into my master gardeners uh, all the time, uh, every year. And what is it? They, they study and attempt, they take sample market basket samples out of grocery stores, take them in the labs and measure whether or not you'd find an active ingredient in, in, present in them. I believe it's, it's close to 45% of all the um, uh, fresh produce and products and grains coming out of the grocery store, they can't find any pesticide residues, none, none whatsoever. And it's about 99% of the products, especially the domestic products, that are um, have either no pesticide residues or are under EPA tolerances. And that's mind-blowing to somebody, people. They just think uh, about, I eat these pesticide residues in my, um, that's where the environmental working group comes in and exploits that to the nth degree. Yeah, it's, it's maddening. And, and, you know, you can find pesticides anywhere. You can find it in organic foods. You can find it in the water. You can find it in the soil. But can you find it in concentrations that are sufficient to be a problem for human health or a problem for environment? And, I mean, when that happens, it's absolutely a very, very rare situation. I mean, it just – I don't want to say it doesn't happen, Um Larry and I can think about some of the, the, the stories back in the day of, of, of different incidences that, that did legitimately cause a health concern, but they were the exceptions. They, they were not the rule. And I think about glyphosate, glyphosate on Durham wheat. We have glyphosate residues in Durham wheat, but it's way down there in terms of any potential health risk. It's way below the maximum residue limit. But if you're a buyer in Europe and you're paranoid of buying Durham because you have a zero tolerance for for glyphosate, that's a problem. And if you're a farmer and you want to sell that Durham and you can't meet that premium because you don't meet the zero tolerance, well, you got a problem. I had a farmer that uh, spends his summers in Arizona, and it's it, most of those communities you kind of end up in like-minded groups. That was what it kind of, you know, how that is. She's he's saying that, you know what, I was in a fairly conservative, big, you know, pro-business um, type of environment. And he's, they, he's, they got into his discussion about ag. 
And he says, I got roasted over the coals on pre-harvest glyphosate in wheat by these folks that are just, and it's all information, information that they found online. You just explained my last week's discussion. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, to the T. (laughs) Okay, so so I'm going to give you, Jason and Kyle, the benefit of the doubt on this. You go out there, you look at the label, you put that stuff on 30% moisture, 30% moisture wheat, and we're going to have the appropriate uh, pre-harvest interval, and and you're okay with that. And you know that there are farmers out there that have way more green spots in that field, and it ain't 30%. It's 45% and it's 50%. And my contention is, is that, yeah... They're trying to harvest the wheat efficiently. I get that. But what they're doing in the, and it doesn't hurt their yields, Mm -hmm. but what they're doing is, is they're risking the ability of us to use that thing in an efficient manner because they're pushing those boundaries. And, and I don't know. I mean, I mean, that's what I do at my pesticide trainings. I'm like trying to argue to people, the reason why we do certain things, some of it is stupid. I get that, okay? And some of it is not stupid. It's designed to prevent problems with being able to market our crops. My, my biggest thing isn't, isn't as much the timing as is to get people to understand that there is a rate. Yeah. There's not. You, I, am, right? I, I know that you want glyphosate to perform faster. More glyphosate above the labeled rate in that environment is not the solution. Those rates, yeah, those rates were put out for a reason. That's the and, and it and wasn't necessarily the, it, well, it wasn't for the efficacy on the weeds that you didn't control in season or mm-hmm. to kill it faster. The rate was likely set for a food safety standard, right? Or, or a glyphosate yeah. level you would find in mm-hmm. crop that would make it acceptable for a food. Right. They got to submit their package, you know? Well, we aren't going to have that problem this year because there's no glyphosate out there. Nobody's going to be using high rates of glyphosate. <laughs> you know, we just don't. You're not wrong. High rate problems. Nobody's going to be putting on four applications of glufosinate on soybeans to kill water amp. It just ain't going to happen this year. No, that's right. No, and the price of glyphosate, yeah, it's going to be cost prohibitive to want to be uh, making that application for pre-harvest dry down. You know, and it's an interesting topic because, you know, for at least the three out of the four of us talking about it, it's it is common practice in hard red spring wheat in northeastern or eastern North Dakota, and yet there's so much focus on that. But there's so much wheat that never sees pre-harvest glyphosate. Period. I mean, I live in the western part of the state, and you you go central North Dakota into montana or or anywhere south any winter wheats it's just it's they go people do that yeah it's kind of a unique and a, a certain geography and it's to maintain quality right so that they can market good grain but i was i i saw someone sent to me i don't know if it was you kyle or if it was my daughter but there was a guy that was on tiktok and he was talking about this and he knew just enough to be dangerous. One, one he called glyphosate an insecticide. <laughs> okay. 
And he was talking about how this gets sprayed on your wheat and how you will get cancer. And he threw out a number like you're 10x more going to get cancer by doing this. And it's just some young, it's some young guy. He doesn't look like he's at a university. He's just, he just put this out there. After two days, he had 868,000 views. Oh my goodness. So that's, that's the frustrating part about misinformation is right. There's no credibility source behind if you, if you are right in what you're saying or if you're not. So that's really interesting because, um, you know, uh, Kyle and Jason and I, we, we kind of all, you know, got together through social media and Twitter and, and Larry, you're kind of getting dialed into that more and more, but you know, we know certain things about pesticides and how the world works and the problems associated with it. And you're, you're, you're trying to say certain things on Twitter, but you don't want to say too much and you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to destroy some people. <laughs> some Light them on fire. Get, so Jason, I, some days I don't want to get fired. You know I mean? It's <laughs> right. like, yeah. It's like, you know, send a direct message to somebody and say, you know, I really agree with this, but I'll never like right. you or comment on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> if you guys yeah. heard of the, on, on, on Facebook, if you guys uh, listen in to these short video clips that the food science babe will have every once in a while. She's excellent. Yep. She is. She calls a spade a spade. Yeah. Well, so, so Larry could do that because he's retired. And one of these days, probably sooner rather than later, I'll retire. <laughs> <laughs> And then we're going to see some. And then we'll have Andrew back on for the rest of the story. You guys, you guys are going to get the full unvarnished treat. Buckle up, Buttercup. (laughs) (laughs) As you you know, Jason, I mean, I try to call things as as well as I can do. You know, know, and I I try to be as straight as you can. you know, I had one uh, one guy send me a message one time, and he said, "Well, Andrew, why don't you really tell him what you think?" <laughs> <laughs> and he says, "You're just soft pedaling this issue, you know." Yeah. what can I say? You know, that's so, folks. This is where we're going to cut off and call this part one of the discussion. We will have a part two. They continue to go. And we get into just a deeper, greater conversation around this pesticide safety topic. Well, I suppose it's time to have a beer. Absolutely. So I know we've uh, missed the last couple of podcasts to give an official beer review, but this is the Agronomist Happy Hour, and so nothing would be complete without having a few drinks, which we've cordially been doing so. So... So, when in Rome. When in Rome. And uh, I will say, I think I've been enjoying my beer more than you, Jason. But uh, Oh, you think? <laughs> yeah, it looks like, a, I've, you know, I can kind of tell it? from these Zoom calls where I can tell when you're kind of choking something down versus, you know, enjoying your beer. So uh, uh, since I like mine so much, I'm going to go last. How about you share <laughs> what you're drinking? <laughs> So I'm, I'm always up to try something new, something different. And uh, this past week, uh, I was doing some meetings and uh, was hanging out with uh, Nellie Spence. 
and uh, she can't drink beer, celiacs. So I found a beer that does not contain wheat or barley. Hmm. It's it's made from sorghum or milo, depending on where you're at or what your preference is. <laughs> Redbridge, it's an Anheuser-Busch brand, and it's, it is definitely, definitely a different taste. There's no doubt about it. Yeah, it's, uh, I don't know how to describe it. It doesn't have that heaviness that a wheat beer does. It definitely doesn't have that barley uh, taste to a lot of different things. It's It's not that it's... It's not my preference. I'll just put it that way. I, I got this six pack. It's, I'm glad I tried it. I have this fascination with sorghum or Milo as a crop. Not so much with the beer. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe yeah. it's safe to tell uh, Greg and Donovan from Two Track that maybe you don't have to worry about trying to source some grain sorghum for malting. No, they're good. They, there's, <laughs> they don't have to worry about that. And uh, the good thing is it's not itchy. Which I hear is a problem if you're growing that crop. And it is, uh, it's a 0.975 BLE. Just comes in under bush light and its active ingredient content. Kind of sounds like the equivalent of Ludafisk lager. Maybe, maybe it's even the same. uh, Percentage wise, taste, not even close. (laughs) (laughs) Which I, well, by the time this airs, we will be sold out of Ludafisk lager. So. I will say a thank you to everyone and organization and uh, that, that helped sponsor that uh, our stupid wild idea for the North Dakota FFA Foundation. When we get everything delivered to them in its entirety, you will hear that on a different episode. But we'll just say thanks to everyone for their support. It was outstanding. Yes, really thank, yes thank you, everybody that's helped with that and, and made a donation and enjoyed some Ludafus Lager. And I will say, hey, reach out if you haven't mm-hmm. already. And I think this will be something we'll want to do again next year. And if you have uh, new and fresh ideas that kind of fit along that theme for the happy hour custom beer thing, let us know. We're uh, we're all ears. So absolutely, you bet. So I did really enjoy my beer this go round, and I think it's because it's a hazy IPA. Surprise, surprise! I guess when you like those hazies, it's uh, it's hard to like anything else. But this one comes from Rogue Brewing. And it's called Bat Squatch. And so there's a little story on the back that talks about this this Bat Squatch. Uh, rumors have circled deep in the woods around Mount St. Helens that lives the fabled Bat Squatch. And so it kind of goes on to talk about the story, and they made an IPA for it. And it's kind of cool on the rogue cans. They, they kind of give this uh, kind of five-pointed star and kind of point to the kind of flavors or the profile it have, if it's tropical citrus, pine, bitter, malt, all that. And so this is definitely more of like a tropical citrus kind of flavor. Maybe that's why I like it so much. And although I have drank all my beer, so I will not be able to pair it with white cheddar, grilled salmon, or strawberry shortcake. <laughs> but I'll have to get this again to try sometime. But uh, yeah, she's uh, she's pretty stout at a 6.7 ABV. This makes it a 1.63 BLE. So it's, uh, yeah, I've had a good jag of Bush Lights. Catch up quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've had Rogue, I've had Rogue before their brands. They, they have good beer. Mm-hmm. I'll, have to, I'll have to find that one. I, that their Dead Guy know. Ale is really good. Yep. Yeah, another good beer. Yeah, I just I just saw this I, gluten-free sorghum beer. And I thought, well, let's, let's see what that's like, you know, because people that probably used to drink beer or could and can't now or never could they can tackle this so it it fits the market it's just uh just has a little different taste than what i'm used to well 
you got my curiosity spiked. I probably got to try it now. But I would say with that, we appreciate it as always, you guys listening to the very end. Uh, and again, hey, you got ideas for uh, next year's Agronomy and Ice Beer via the happy hour? Let us know. Or if you have suggestions for beer that you'd like us to try, you could uh, send them our way. Don't forget about That's right. that. Yeah. <laughs> think, think of your poor podcasting friends. <laughs> yeah, think of your poor podcasting buddies. So anyways, we'll say with that, cheers. And we will catch you guys next week on the Agronomist Happy Hour. Cheers. Please hold for a very important message. If you like and listen to this podcast, we have a couple favors to ask. If you'd subscribe to our podcast and give us a five-star review, that's the farthest right star, we'd be extremely grateful. And if you got any topic suggestions, write us a review or find us on our social media platforms on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Oh, yeah, and one more thing. Send beer. Yes, send beer. Thank you.